Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. And these conversations give you the stories, tools, and action steps of the world's smartest people that you can use to fight for a better future for everyone. Those guests are scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, farmers, engineers, professors, policymakers, astronauts, you name it. This is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at important.imp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. It comes at you on Fridays at importantnotimportant.com. You can also find fantastic sustainable merch like stickers, t-shirts, uh, coffee mugs, and such on our website at importantnotimportant.com slash store. Folks, uh, this week's episode is um, an unintended follow-up, though uh, I will always have this person on the show as long as they'll have me. Um, We are talking about what we've learned from COVID, and most importantly, where we go from here, knowing what we know and what we don't yet. Our guest is, again, she's back for her second time, Dr. Nahid Badelia, and she is one of the world's leading infectious disease specialists. Uh, She's back, and let's all agree that next time she says pandemic might happen soon, we just go ahead and jump. Um, Nobody knows the technical side of this stuff better than she does, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you today. Here we go. Our guest today is inexplicably back for another round, uh, one of our all-time favorites, Dr. Nahid Badelia, and together we're talking about um, boy, a lot of things have happened since the last time. Uh, big changes, small changes. Talk about uh, what we have learned, uh, what we haven't, where we're going as a society, economy, uh, public health, and each of us individually. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk to this human. Dr. Bedelia, welcome back. Quinn, thanks for having me. You know, it's so funny. Last time we talked, we talked about this existential threat of a pandemic. And you know, what is it, a year, a year and a half later, we lived through a huge years. part of that. <laughs> yes, we've aged definitely a hundred years in that period. But we've, we've lived, lived through that existential threat. And it's, it's interesting, the, the perspective that, that we all now have, both individually, but as a society, that, that we didn't in the last year and a half. Yeah, and, and look, there's been, and we'll get into all of it, right? There's just been tremendous... Uh, suffering and tremendous sacrifice on the part of so many. And yet it's sometimes, this is what my wife is like, you know, when she says like, you have, I I have acquired over the past few years, the unique ability to be the bummer in every conversation with this generalist view of everything going on in science. Uh, But you know, it's, it's obviously hard to not be like, you think this is bad? Wait till we talk about antibiotics or, uh, you know, or (laughs) what's going on with climate. It's like, now's not, not the time. Let's just, let's, let's hold on a minute. But, you know, I, I'm excited to talk about um, what we've learned, what what we knew ahead of time and we didn't use and, and where that stuff has taken us. Because again, um, I think if you listen to our first one and then and then get into this, uh, we could have we could have done a little better. So anyways, let's let's dig into this thing again. It's always sort of action oriented questions and then what everyone can do uh, for themselves, for their for their cities or towns to support you and your mission. Uh, which is to save the world, I believe, is your title. Um, so you answered this once before, but maybe that's changed now, maybe not. Uh, Nahid, why are you vital to the survival of the species? 
I am vital because I serve as a uh, a voice that reminds us that we continue to have this existential crisis, and that when these crises hit, they generally take advantage of the fault lines that already exist in our society, and you know, and worsen them. I think I, I think that's I'm the Cassandra, I guess. Everybody in my field is the Cassandra that nobody listens to when it comes to the threat of the emerging infectious diseases. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll get a little better about that. Somebody had a, you know, sl- funny slash, oh my God, uh, tweet a month ago, which is everyone's going to look back in five years and try to figure out why they're following five epidemiologists on Twitter. And, uh, yeah. Everybody I mean, just follows me for the photos, Quinn. Nobody actually oh, follows me for the I mean, <laughs> to be clear, like, that's half of the reason I follow you. It's just, I'm just like, how do we go there? Like, what, where, how do we get back to that life? Yeah, well. Crazy. Well, we thank you for your service now and, and certainly going forward. So you, I know you do have some news to share, which is fun and exciting. We will save that. And so maybe everybody's eyes won't glaze over and we'll get to the end and talk about it. Um, so he, after our conversation, but at the beginning of this thing, a, uh, a science writer I have huge uh, respect for named Ed Yong, uh, The Atlantic, um, came out of uh, sabbatical came off the bench um, to do some, along with a number of other amazing folks, including a lot of folks at The Atlantic, uh, to do some truly tremendous coverage about not just like, what is this thing? Though he definitely covered what is this thing, but why why did this happen? What did we do to instigate it? How have we responded and, and why? And most importantly, as we were talking about offline, he had this quote, which I'll, I'll mangle about essentially, you know, if COVID was a flood on a sidewalk and it exposed all the cracks in the sidewalk. And my version of that was essentially, you know, and obviously this was going on before. And I think the first time we mentioned COVID before it was COVID in the newsletter was like January or something, something coming out from the wet markets in China going like, well, hopefully this isn't bad. You know, for for America, if, if COVID was a pop quiz on what did we say that last Friday when everyone took their kids out of school, March 12th or 13th, Pop quiz on every decision we'd made uh, in the public health system, uh, on our just-in-time supply chain for for medicine, uh, society-wise uh, uh, inequities, pre-existing conditions, all these things. It was a it was a pop quiz of sort of these are all the choices you have made. These are the people you've put in office. These are the people who are on TV. These are the people who run these systems. Let's see how you did. You know, let's really take a measuring stick to it all. Um, and this country uh, did, did um, pretty abhorrently in a lot of ways, despite all the many, 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 many sacrifices uh, made by, by folks like yourself who, who have been on the front lines and sort of knew a lot of what was coming. It's, it's, it's hard to think about because it didn't have to be this way. You have worked on the ground in epidemic and potentially epidemic situations. I mean, you know, I think about w- what happened in West Africa for a few years while you were there. What could have happened in Lagos when they when they went after all the contact tracing there, which is something we've been doing since smallpox. And you've learned so much from all that. What did you feel like you weren't prepared for when this thing hit, despite all of this exceptional, very unique uh, training for a moment like this, but on our shores. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's interesting you say about this being a pop quiz because there are definitely 
there were definitely not surprises, right? I mean, there's there are the the dies cast in 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 terms of the way that these pathogens take advantage of us, and 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 the things that we knew they were always going to take advantage of is that we have not done a very good job living with the nature around us, and as we change the structure of the environment around us we put ourselves at increased risk. And I said this the last time I was on, you know, we always knew that this threat existed, that there are going to be an increased chance of viruses um, to jump from other animals into humans because we are encroaching into these balanced milieus where animals have lived in balance with these viruses. And now we are putting down roads, getting rid of wetlands. We are, you know, we are using more animals for protein because there are twice as many of us in the last 40 something years on the face of the earth. Um, we knew that we knew the threat was coming. We also knew that, you know, part of the reason we're blind is because, um, we don't, we don't realize that the, the weaknesses in, in our own, in, 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 in the way we care for each other, you know, and in, in the way that I translate that in my field is like health equity, the way that we care for each other, um, is, is, is the way that these viruses take advantage of us. And, and we knew that. We knew that after Africa, you know, West Africa with the Ebola virus disease epidemic, where you saw um, that it is the part of the reason we miss the initial cases and they become epidemics and pandemics is because at the tail end of all infectious diseases surveillance for, you know, for new pathogens are communities that don't have access to care. And because mm-hmm. we don't care that they don't have access to care, we generally sure. miss it when the yeah. first like, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, depending on the community you're looking at cases first appear with these types of with these types of new infections. And the third thing we've always known is that we're we're not good at working with each other towards a common goal. You know, look at what we've been able to achieve, you know, when we do work together, whether it's like about uh, vaccine creations or even creating a scientific knowledge base around what drugs works and what drugs don't work. You know, the, the most mm-hmm. successful studies where uh, things like WHO Solidarity's trial or the work that UK, UK's recovery trial did where they, they brought together tons of different populations who were able to quickly answer with one unified question, you know, does this drug, drug work, works or does it not work, right? And that's important in the middle of a pandemic because if you start investing in things that don't work, then there's a marginal cost to that. And it's beyond just like, you know, false hope. It has a marginal cost to potential impact on patients about about taking, you know, resources away from other things that could work. Here's what I did not expect. So I knew all of those things. Sure. The thing that I did not expect was how vulnerable even uh, well-formed advanced democracies were to interference of politics in outbreak response. Mm-hmm. I could not have predicted that, you know, our Achilles heel, that the thing that would devastate one of the most well-resourced, you know, countries in the world um, would be actually the disinformation that stemmed from political division, right? I mean, I, and it's not just, it's not just political interference from, from above, but actually political division and and how human sort of relations and political division is another fault line. So it's not just that we don't care for each other or the fact that we're not good at working together or that we're not taking care of the environment, but that when we are politically divided, uh, we can interpret data in different ways. And that can be another fault line that these viruses can take advantage of. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 Partisanship 
to label it in an incredibly superficial way that has grown quite a bit, both in volume um, and I think in rigor in this country uh, over the past however long you want to say. I mean, there, there have always been issues. We split in half and had a civil war at one point um, that we purposefully never healed from. Those things affect all of these decisions we make. It's why only 50% of people vote if we're lucky and the vote is always going to be swung by a few states. It's why, um, you know, we have hard, uh, difficult time with long-term projects because elect one person and then the budgets go one way and they elect one person, they go the other way. And that's, again, the things we know about and the things we're willing to talk about and to acknowledge, if not prepare for. I, I wrote this thing a few months ago. I can't remember when it was because time has just no meaning to me anymore about exceptionalism, essentially which is, you know, what New York suffered just over a year ago now. This is going to come out mid-May. Uh, you know, when, when they talked about you could hear the sirens in the streets every night um, and that y-axis, what that looked like and why it happened that way, which may have been due to density. It may have been uh, down to this this feeling that New York has always had of, you know, we are... New York, again, I, I lived there, did my time. I, I love a lot of people there, but you know, has this has this feeling of invincibility, and um, I think a lot of places in the South have the same thing for very different reasons. And I wrote it before Los Angeles got really bad in the winter, but they have the same things. And maybe it's because Los Angeles is so spread out that they didn't hear those sirens in the streets that New Yorkers did, and so maybe they just kept on not wearing masks, whatever it might have been. They have these enormous brown and black populations, smaller black population. But the point is, it's the people who harvest the food and make the food and serve the food. Well, everyone else just got to order it from home and, and you know, keep their bubbles that were, were not tight. But this, this sense of exceptionalism that we, we continue to carry and to stand by, again, was tested and, and failed in so many different ways. And, and I just... I'm struggling to understand, you know, if if it's sort of the rule of like, if this, then what else? You know, like, if this isn't going to be the thing that shatters that and realizes like, we have to go back down to the fundamental pieces of the problem and, and build them back up. Wh what is the thing that's going to get us there? How, how do we, how do we do better next time? You know, yeah. un understanding that these fundamental pieces might never change. The thing that, you know, so my career is dedicated to providing technical assistance, right, to to both communities here, but also communities abroad in, in sure. resource-limited settings to help resilience against outbreaks. Imagine being someone in my field coming from the U.S., now going to Nigeria or going to Liberia, right? I mean, it flips the whole paradigm on its head about, about exactly as you were saying, our exceptionalism and what we thought, you know, we were immune to. Um, and, and so one of the things that the dimension that this changes also is that um, it's not just resources, you know, that the way that we get beyond this is, is beyond just resources or well-timed, you know, all of those are things that are needed, clearly. Um, so that's, that's one bit about, about knowledge can come, that knowledge about resilience can come not just from resources. Right, mm -hmm. that resilience mm -hmm. is beyond just resources, and I think that you you saw that there were communities that were affected, you know, heavily affected by Ebola that did a really good job of of potentially, you know, turning despite their low resources, turning their their uh, their their sort of 
already existing emergency coordination structures. Like we wrote a paper about this with Uganda about how the work that was already being done around Ebola was just converted into working on COVID. Um, and and there are multi, multiple reasons. Maybe you know many many other countries that I've worked in maybe were not as affected as, as heavily. Maybe it's an age thing. It's a it is a maybe it's the younger population. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe you know not as many introductions of the virus, but definitely a big part of it also is is the way that existing structures had been used and understanding at the population level of the importance of this because they'd already gone through it with Ebola recently, right? But but when I spoke about the political division, I don't even think it's just exceptionalism here in the U.S. I actually think I see that played out. I mean, look at what's happening in India. It played out in Brazil. It, play, it played out in so many different countries about, and, and how do you sort of start thinking about that? Because I'm a technocrat, right? I, I work on personal protective equipment and work on training healthcare workers and evaluating medical countermeasures. You know, ask me how to solve a problem. I'll give you a solution solution that's technical. And what this pandemic tells me is that the solution, the solutions include things that are not technical. We've always known that about public health, but so much of the solutions are political and cultural. Um, And that's something I didn't expect. Yeah. And, and, and we just, again, it's like, you know, when you, when you watch a great, did you see, uh, came out last year again, who knows, Knives Out, uh, yeah. the murder mystery movie, right? So great. And there's, there's just so many of those great ones throughout history, whether they're movies or, or shows or, uh, or, or books. And the, the best thing is always at the end and you get to go back and see all the seeds that were planted, right? And you're just like, oh shit, how did I miss that? No, of course, that, <laughs> right. the whole time, right? I mean, this is a country, it can't, the answer can't be resources because Black moms die in childbirth at three to four times the rate of white women, right? And and the you know life expectancy in Chicago between white people and black people is something like twenty years. I'm going to mangle that, but and I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But it's and, and when we talk to Lauren Underwood about this uh, about the black maternal health thing, when something is one and a half times as bad, fifty percent as bad, or twice as bad, you go, boy, something's broken there, and we have to fix that, right? And maybe it's technical, or maybe it's politics, or resources, or funding, or or land use, whatever it might be. When something is three to four times as bad, or in her home state where it's six times, you're six times as likely to die from childbirth-related issues as a white woman, right? Um, or where you see, you know, seventy percent of of black people in America are likely to live something like within fifteen miles of coal plant. Those are choices we've. That's not something broken. That is a system that's designed that way. And that's where you go, oh, well, we're going to have, we'll get to the technical stuff. But that's, that's not the, the, the fundamental piece of this puzzle. And that's where it was so interesting to me thinking about this exceptionalism thing, because I kept thinking like, okay, if Trump wasn't in charge, like, would these things have still existed, right? I mean, the whole point of Trump was, was he, he didn't just come from nowhere. He was this manifestation of, of 40 years of work to get to that point. And so these things were already underlying, and we, we have to find some way to, tr- to try to fix those things, I guess, um, you know, to, to do better. But we have to look at all these other places where it already exists. You know, there was this statistic in um, Los Angeles Times, put a piece, and I'll put it in the show notes, um, something like uh, folks on Medicaid, again, I'm, I'm going to mangle this, on Medicaid had to wait something like 80 days to see a specialist in Los Angeles. And what what the death rate was of those folks. Now again, these are choices we're making, and that's in every day. It's like the rainy day flooding that Miami's dealing with, right? Which is already a problem. 
But when a hurricane comes, you're fucked. When, yeah. when the next COVID comes or antibiotics or whatever it might be, what are we going to do better? You know, and, and that's why I'm so curious and, and so desperate to get the advice from someone like you again, who goes back, can go back to Uganda, Nigeria and go, wait, why did this work here? You know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to paint it, paint it as this like terrible picture. Like no, there's no, some but, exceptional but it is. stuff. No, no, but, no, no, no. No, no. What I, what I'm trying to think of is like, you know, so there's, there's a couple of things, right? There, there are things that are specific to pandemics and outbreaks, but as, as exactly sure. as you said, huge part of, huge part of, uh, of, of what happens in pandemics are things that we let happen beforehand. And then we act surprised that they, they became compounded by, sure. by a, a new hazard. But, but some of it is just an underlying inability for us to, and whether whether it's like you know Los Angeles looking at New York's experience, you know it's like not sure. learning from other people's experience, but also looking at immediate results and not making future investments. And we sure. do that in environment, which you know very well about how we spend our, our carbon, you know, our carbon footprint every single day, borrowing from future generations. But we're sure. we're kind of doing that in terms of what we do with pandemic preparedness as well. Is that we. We don't make the investments now for a future gain. We're not thoughtful, you know, enough. And part of part of why potentially is that we we think in individual terms rather than uh, we should be thinking more in communal terms in, in trying to say what is a greater common good that we are all donating or dedicating towards. And and not enough of that happens. And I don't think that's just the U.S. I think it's just it's a it's 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 a human thing. And and and. For us to get beyond these existential crises of climate and existential crises of emerging pathogens, that's the shift. That's the basic shift that we need to change is, is investment now for a future uh, that we don't yet see, that we may not individually benefit from, but, but that we will make the, wor- the world a better place with. And this is where, and I do, now I, I do want to focus on going forward now that we've talked about how sad everything has been, um, <laughs> you know, because there are enormous fundamental transformational things we can do. And these systems are so complicated and complex that they can start to pay off in a number of different ways. But we have to be honest about what's out there. You know, we had on um, a wonderful uh, author, and she's now the uh, opinions editor for Boston Globe, uh, Bina Venkatraman. And she wrote she's this wonderful. amazing book. Oh my God, she's the best. She wrote this amazing book called The Optimist Telescope. Um, and she always yells at me. She's like, you promote it as if you're my brother. She's like, we've met twice on Zoom. Um, <laughs> it, but it stuck with me. And the thing that really, the whole book's great. Um, and I, I fully subscribe to that perspective. And she had this one thing that we talked about at the end that has stuck with me. And I've made it a fundamental part of basically like how, how I live my life, but also how I conduct this business and have these conversations, whether they're offline or online. And and I think uh, using a near-term vision of this uh, would be profoundly helpful for, for this conversation, but also going forward, which is, she asks, how can I be a better ancestor? Mm. And that's really specific. And she made the point, she doesn't have kids, and I'm not sure she's planning to. I've got th- three mutants back at home who are incredibly privileged and healthy and fine. But how can we be better ancestors, even though we're will probably be around for the next version of this. And climate is already happening to so many people. More people are feeling it ever. You know, Redfin just ran this whole huge poll and people are moving for the first time because of climate change. What are the things we need to do specifically in this country? And then, of course, abroad, though a lot of places handled it much differently and much better. 
what are the things we can do to set the next generation up for success? You know, all these kids who are, I mean, I'm so inspired. Like Generation Z gets such a hard rap. And yet these kids are out marching in the streets and they're trying so hard and they're going to have a lower life expectancy than their parents and they can't afford houses and to get married and to have kids and things like that. But they're going to be in charge. It's a pipeline. This is the way things go. So how do we set them up to be able to do these things when they're carrying so much college debt, you know, and so they're going to have to go be a lawyer in finance. I want them to do what you do. How, how do we set them up? What are the systems we need to take apart and then rebuild here to make those fundamental things work, to set them up so that this can go better next time? Well, you got the wrong guest. You got to find somebody who has solutions to those. I'm just an ID doc. They don't pay me the big bucks to answer those questions. Um, but I, I do think there are specific questions. I mean, I, I think, how do, we, how do we set ourselves up better for the next one, right? Because there will be next one. Um, one and and there there are ways that the the projects and I think we talked about some of these as well. One is that we need to keep our eyes closer to the ground here globally, and and we do that by looking at both animal and human populations, particularly at that interface. You know, and there's a lot of projects like the Global Virome Project that's looking for a potential, uh, which you might have heard of, and Ed might have spoken about. I'm I'm not sure, but uh, but the idea of like looking at those viruses that might make a jump. You know, um, so that's. That's and, and even but even before that, like we work by by decreasing the chances that that the viruses do jump, and and part of that is being more sustainable in the way that we interact with 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 the nature around us. And it's you know, and again, it's not in my field; it, it intersects with my field, so I won't I won't deign to sort of comment on that. But the idea that it is so it, that that existential crisis is tied intimately with this existential crisis and we cannot separate the two you know but but my my role starts once we start getting into once the the virus jumps into humans right um the other is 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 keeping our ears to the ground in being able to pick up these diseases and that actually means um work that we've that's already been done since ebola since we last spoke a lot of the work on things like global health security which is helping countries uh, develop this to the ability to to surveil, detect, and respond to emerging pathogens, right? But all of those were, again, very technical answers, right? This is a huge part of global health security was um, helping set up the infrastructure, finding where those infrastructure is, finding where the gaps are, helping the international community find that everywhere, like here in the U.S., you know, Uganda and Liberia and all the different places that I work with. Um, and then there were other technical solutions, right? Uh, the other technical solutions that came out of Ebola where the WHO developed the research and development uh, priority list. They identified these 10 pathogens that are going to be, uh, they know are going to be potentially epidemic you know, threats. And so this is where the infrastructure could be put to create readiness, you know, and, and actually they have something called disease X, which, you know, now that we have COVID, COVID moves out of there, disease X still stays. And the third part is something called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which was a multilateral private as well as public and academic organs, you know, collateral sort of consortium that put funding into developing vaccines for the diseases that were on WHO's R&D list. You know, mm -hmm. these were, again, these are all very technical answers, right? These sure. were like, how do we get these vaccines developed? And these are important. These are very important. But if I look at like the kind of stuff that we, we as we move forward, global health security, like what has COVID taught me in terms of the kind of things that I think uh, we need to do? And we talked about one, which is this idea of political interference and how do we, how do we 
or politi- politicization? How do we yeah. move out, you know, our response from from the divisions that sort of plague us? But the other non-technical things are the the role of disinformation and misinformation. We sure. we are a gener- you know, we are the people of our generation. We are overwhelmed with information and, and the flood of information brings both the good and the bad. And we haven't yet mastered that, particularly about how do you get critical information out to people? Mm-hmm. When there's a deluge of information being sent their way, so they can make decisions to save their lives, sure. we don't have an answer for that yet. And and this pandemic has made it so clear because there's so confu- so much confusion about whether pandemic is even you know whether the the virus is even real or not, whether masks help or not. And as because it's not yes, there might be malicious aspects of it, but but there are majority of this is the volume of information that's coming at people and and sure. and there there's potentially a technical answer to this but there is a societal answer of how do we manage this um, to get timely information out to people to get timely information back from people about what's affecting them right it goes both ways i think um the the other is is equity realizing that inequities all the things that we talked about, you know, inequities will always be our fault lines and how we break. And when we break along those lines, it affects everybody. Sure. Um, and that, you know, that you can't, when you work on the technical answers of pandemic preparedness, you have to pay uh, attention to like community vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. One example that I always use is like, how did we completely manage to not support our frontline workers, essential workers who are in multi-generational families and communities of color. We gave them no, we just said, here you go, here's a cloth mask. Good luck to you on those front lines, yeah, right? Please we, don't we let me our, get this. <laughs> right. We we helped we helped our healthcare workers a lot more, but there was no guided, like, you know, specific guidance for for frontline workers. And that's an example of what we knew was a fault line, but we did not work to bridge that fault line so that our frontline essential workers weren't heavily affected and didn't take it back to their families who were sure. disproportionately affected. And then and the last bit that I'll end with is like, you know, I was, as a science nerd, I was just amazed by what we can accomplish when we put enough money and resources. We have vaccines that are, yes, in, in, inequitably like distributed right now around the world. But we have a vaccine that within a year and a half or something of this pathogen getting on the scene are helping us get back to normal. And and there are still diseases that are that have been plaguing societies, you know, for decades. And we haven't figured out how to do that. And it tells you that it's not just about technology, it's the political will behind sure. funding those things. You know, the science can work. The science is promising. We just need the funding and the political will behind it. Yeah, and it would be great if we didn't have to concentrate for one year, stop all of the other science and throw it all at one thing. It's a little bit of like the Armageddon Bruce Willis thing where it's like, how much money do you need? Doesn't matter. Like, we got to do all the things. And so I'm sure that was profoundly helpful in getting probably one of humankind's greatest achievements, these two vaccines, to be so effective and to happen so quickly when most vaccines fail. I mean, we see this shit every day, right? Most things don't even get to stage two and three trials. People have no idea. Um, but hope, so hopefully it doesn't require that. But at the same time, you, you're starting to see like, oh shit, how, how can we think about malaria differently? And so you saw the news about that this week. That's, that's just profound, right? But there's also basic things. And I think back, you know, we had this wonderful conversation with uh, Karen Huster, who worked with Partners in Health on Ebola. She's just- We worked together. Oh man, she's the greatest. Uh, I, I I loved that conversation. But she, you know, she talked about, and I want to go back to your disinformation thing, which is like, look, I, if if there's anything I've realized this year with my kids or life or, or COVID is like control what you can control, right? All you can do is all you can do. So you and I can't 
do anything about the pure volume of mis- and disinformation that's out there. But we can control, hopefully, the information we are putting out and the institutions we work for and support and and we're behind, right? Or we're inspired by or we believe in. And it, so much of that comes down to, I remember her talking about the disbelief and the disinformation around Ebola and getting people to just be treated and what that meant. Because the thing about a... Uh, uh, a pandemic or an uh, you know epidemic on a relatively smaller scale is it is inherently not black kids getting cancer because they live next to a coal plant or getting cancer or asthma right because I can't give you Nahid I can't spread asthma to you but these things this the correct information and how we provide it is a public good because. As everybody has learned, if you didn't know what the word pandemic means, it means I can give it to you. So we all win. It's this whole like, we're trying to figure out how do we message people to go get the vaccine because now we've done all these work. We got to do the hard work, whether it's evangelicals or people who've listened to Trump, whatever it might be. To understand like, look, man, it's not just you getting your life back. It's you're protecting your family around you and, and all these things. And it's, that's where I come down again to these first principles. And I saw you joined this this uh, this group, Menteca. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, there's this, piece on their website, if I can read it real quick, which says, addressing future epidemics and pandemics requires an emphasis on basic health care, which is exactly the area most neglected in conflict-affected non-state spaces. If any type of health care is present in such areas, it's usually emergency care, and I know you've done that. And so the goal is to strengthen the capacity of local health workers and communities to carry out public health activities in non-state spaces and other hard-to-reach areas. We don't do that here. I mean, my friends who work in rural hospitals, I mean, to talk about, you know, people don't have, you know, the women who don't have uh, reproductive care, because we keep taking that away. They got to drive 75 miles and then see three ultrasounds. How do we start there? Like, what have you learned from that that we can apply here? That feels like semi-technical. <laughs> um, you know, how can we start to level that up so that when the information gets there, people have been taken care of and we've been emphasizing wellness and we don't have so many of these pre-existing conditions that are susceptible to mortality? Yeah, I... I, I think that it, the part of what we, what Mateka says on their website is, is exactly what I said to you before, which is that I think that the blind spots, our blind spots to this existential threat, which is pandemics, is the fact that majority of the people on the front line don't have health care, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it is that, that, it, that mm-hmm. it's, and, and, and we forget that, that, that because we don't, we, I think part of the issue here in this country, and I'll, I'll talk about this country and I'll talk about uh, global before. Please. Part of the uh, global after, rather, part of the problem here is that we, you know, you just talked about the difference between what makes infectious diseases different than other things, which is that it's, it's, we, our destinies are tied. But that's not how we think of health, right? Our health at baseline for us is an individual responsibility and a private commodity. Sure. It is not a public right. It is not a, you know, it is not part of the public sector, and that's okay. But like, it's not also not something we think that people have a right to we think is the thing that people pay for. And the quality of it is, is you know, sometimes linked to the amount of pay- money that they pay for it. Sure. Um, and that's a different way of thinking than the kind of thinking that's required when, when you deal with communicable diseases, which means that your health is my health. If mm-hmm. you don't have access to care, if your baseline health is not well, you know, it's not well taken care of, then you're affecting, you know, your own health, but your, your health and your ill health is affecting the community health. That, that all of a sudden it becomes not about the individual's right to versus not right to health, but the idea that 
the community's destiny, the, the entire community's destiny is sort of tied to that. And, and, and I do think part of that is just better primary care. It's better primary care here. And by the way, the answer is the same everywhere else as well. It's, it's this idea of like, how do you generate enough, how we get eyes on the ground, how we create resilience is, is by um, creating that infrastructure to get everybody a basic amount of care so that, you know, that their health then becomes reflected in the better health for their community, which means better resilience for the rest of the world. You know, so that's one. But the other is targeted surveillance for infectious diseases. So one, so I'm on the, the, the organization that you mentioned, the Menteca organization. Um, Tom Gregg, who's the founder of it, you know, has done a lot of work on polio eradication and particularly in polio eradication in conflict affected areas and, and mm-hmm. areas where, you know, you can't really get access to populations because of, uh, of the non-state sort of uh, uh, non-state nature of them. And, and, and the organization that he was working with before the center for humanitarian dialogue, some of the lessons that they learned where, you know, you can't go in into communities and say, we're worried about this disease. Let's focus on this disease. You know, whether it's Ebola or polio or COVID, sure. you have to go into, in those settings or even before you have to go in to sort of understand the communities, all the communities needs, right. And, and the way that you convince people, convince people or, or the way that you have a conversation even about vertical, uh, interventions like vaccines is you sort of you you listen you understand the, the the perspective of that community you figure out who the trusted messengers are you're invested that it's not a one-time vertical intervention that you're going in with and so the 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 fact that we can we can have the way that we have good surveillance is that we need to we need to sort of understand the larger sort of weaknesses or the 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 fault lines in those communities and then put in good surveillance so that if we find one we ensure everybody's health but then if we all of a sudden find a larger sort of jump in cases you know of, of acute illness of something that we we've made it so that the system not only provides care but the system picks up fluctuations and that sure. was sort of that's the basic level of surveillance right the basic surveillance is uh access mortality and, and that's mm-hmm. the concept that if in a community, all of a sudden you get more deaths than what you were expecting, then you should look into that. There must be something going on acutely that's changed because all of a sudden, like this month, it doesn't different just happen. Yeah, it just doesn't. Happen. That's the that's the basic level of surveillance. I got to tell you, Quinn, there are parts of the world that don't even have that. They don't have a handle on access mortality. They can't sure. tell you if more people have died in their community. In, and there are fewer, thankfully, communities like that than there were there about 10 years ago. But they're there. And that's 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 the issue is that we our surveillance is not even good enough to pick up if all of a sudden there's a bunch of people who in some areas of the world they might have died. Uh, and, and we can't sort of expect that. Um, so the, the, the surveillance needs to include access to care. It needs to include ability to pick up changes. And then it needs to be included in more uh, more technical things, such as laboratory capacity. So now it's good enough. You found out a bunch of people are dying, but what are they dying of? And I can tell you as a personal experience, uh, as someone who's worked in resource-limited settings, there are parts of the world where there are entire hospital wards that are filled with people who don't have a diagnosis because there's no capacity to test them. And there are people who die without a diagnosis and not knowing what they died of, without their family knowing what they died of. And the next level beyond what we're just talking about is building that laboratory capacity. So, you know, we know what they died of, uh, but they know what they died of. And and there, there's a Gates, um, just to tell you how prevalent this is, Gates Foundation has a program called CHAMPS. I think it's a childhood mortality, under five mortality, figuring out what children are dying of in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, through autopsies and through, you know, getting a sense, 
because we don't have a handle on that. And so that's the next solution. It's equity. It is, it is, you know, years to the ground is laboratory capacity. And then it's access to treatment because, you know, if you don't have that ready, what's the point of diagnosing people? If you can't link that, the ability to provide good quality of care, because good quality of care and the capacity to isolate people and provide that care is what is the fire break that keeps an outbreak from going out of control. If you have good resources to, you know, bring people into care to, to solve their, you know, their disease, so they are not in the community longer, potentially getting their family members sick, potentially getting, you know, uh, their community sick, then, then, then what's, what's the point? So those are the technical answers that, that I know those sound really simple, but they require global cooperation and they require a lot more sort of shifting in, in, in the way that we think about, um, individual responsibility and, and, and community survival. Well, it sounds simple, but it's the simple things we're not doing, right? And from the basic healthcare or, or wellness or more primary care or getting people to take their medications, whatever it might be. And like you said, just local day-to-day surveillance is what enables us to level up so that when something happens and we over-index on something, even if we don't know what it is yet, we're able to respond to that because we have a beat on that. And we have a good relationship with the people in that community, right? Like you said, it's no fun when somebody swings in and it's one time and they're like, you need to do this. It's like, well, who the hell are you guys, right? No matter how bad it is. It's, you know, there was so much stuff early on about, oh, South Korea is doing great because of this and Japan's doing great because of this and this and this. And it's because in Vietnam and it's because, you know, a lot of that is they learned a lot from SARS, right? We didn't get that. And they learned, which was very different. I mean, you got SARS, like within a day, you were in deep shit. And of course, the asymptomatic versions of this made this much more difficult, of course. And America's designed to be federal states' rights, complicated, 50 different versions, everybody bidding against each other for PPP. There are inherent things that are just going to be unfixable. But at the same time, hopefully we can say like, okay, now 10 years from this, what have we learned like they did with that and to implement those things so that surveillance isn't a scary word. And so that when it does happen, you can start to do the technical things that can make people better, that can be that firewall. So what's your role in this going forward? How are you going to make us not screw it up again? What have, <laughs> what have you learned? What in the lab sense, in the policy sense, in the research sense, like how does that all come together from you? And, and I guess it's a hell of a thing to go through something, whether it's your profession or not, right? And it's easy for and helpful and daunting and scary sometimes to put everything in perspective quickly, it's like losing a loved one and you go like, oh shit, none of that other stuff is important. Here's what's important. What's important to you over the next two, five, 10 years and how you apply yourself? So I'm actually going to continue to do a lot of what I'm doing, but I'm taking on a new venture, which I think which you foreshadowed with at the beginning of this show. So we're launching a center at Boston University called the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases Policy and Research. And it's bringing together all these disparate threads of the work that I'm doing already globally and and here, um, and and really the goal of this Quinn is 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 exactly what I said is that it's it's finding those fault lines and filling them in beforehand. It's raising mm-hmm. awareness about them. It's doing research around them, and and the four themes. And so the center of you know, seed, easier to say, right. uh, the <laughs> BUC. Um, the, the big goal is to generate sort of like evidence-based programmatic and policy research and, and, and around four particular things. And 
One is resilience, you know, and so it's, it's community resilience, like the kind that we talked about. It's recognizing who's going to be at risk and, and, and building those fire breaks beforehand. Uh, but also things like conflict, you know, a conflict in infectious disease surveillance, finding the other blind spots. Let's find all the blind spot and blind spots and sign, shine a light on them and fill them in with resources now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also working on... Um, health equity elements within that because I think that's we recognize how important that is. The other is healthcare systems resilience. You know, um we are one of the best resource healthcare systems in the world. And 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 we suffered under the surge of, of these infections. And as we w- look forward potentially to the next threat or as we walk towards the next threat, like what do we learn from this threat that we can sort of use to build uh, more resilience within our healthcare system, whether it be supply chains or whether it be better integrating research into care so we can quickly answer questions about how do we provide better care for the next 100 patients that come in with this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also looking at governance and and the idea of of how you know countries are beholden to each other and, and right now um, when there's a threat within their borders, but then also um, how we work together, you know, with research governance to try to increase sort of awareness about uh, the existing threats, but also answering on what the what the what the right sort of vaccines, the diagnostics, the the the, the, the therapeutics that are out there together in in a fast um, in a in a in a in a timely manner. Um, and and with that, I mean, I'm interested in this is not my field, but the blind spot that I had, which is this idea of how political systems can make political systems and their mechanisms of accountability or lack of accountability can actually make outbreaks worse Mm. or better. You know, I'm sort of interested in that. We're also working at trust. Here's the thing, right? When you, the biggest, I think, you know, surprise to me is that we talked about uh, pandemic preparedness, but the one, the two elements, couple elements that we left out from the big one that we left out in terms of response was the community people. We, we were very technical in our answers. And in fact, what you need is trust, right? That's sort of the third thing that we're working on is, is building, um, looking at misinformation and disinformation, looking at how public health folks work with media um, to get that information out, particularly when there's scientific uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, look at how geopolitics plays a role in spreading disinformation, you know, and, 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 and then lastly, innovation, looking at like uh, emerging technologies that are going to be coming on the scene for the next 10 years and their impact, their challenges, getting them to a point where they're equitably accessible for more communities in the world. So that's, that's what the center is doing. We're going to be funding and doing research in those things. We're going to be hosting a ton of uh, events, you know, community facing events and public facing events. We're going to be advocating to legislators and providing them with the technical resources that they need. And, and uh, as a lifelong student myself, We'll have a, a lot of opportunities for, for students and, and researchers and others to collaborate with us. And so that's on top of my, you know, everyday travel. Yeah, everywhere, you don't have shit else to do. So that's great. I'm not gonna give yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give that up. I'm I'm yeah, still yeah, yeah. gonna be doing all the other work that I'm doing globally. But that's that's the next big move. So super exciting. How big is this venture people wise? Like, what is it? Is it you, you and your laptop for now? Like are you hiring <laughs> like crazy? Is it two hundred people, five hundred people? Is it the Avengers? What are we looking at? Uh, I kind of I do feel like I'm building the ship as I'm sailing. Um, so we have a core staff, and we have about we have faculty here at BU as well as faculty um, across as, as well as faculty across sort of the the country, and multiple other academic centers as well as nonprofits and elsewhere. Uh, but it is it is small now, but the goal uh, for it is to be uh, focused on the right things. You know, focused on the things that need investment uh, that we've seen sort of missing. You know, coming out of this pandemic. 
So if I'm a young person, which I'm not, um, and I am coming up in high school or college or grad school or med school, whatever it might be, PhD, and I've got infectious disease on the brain, which now that I think about it could probably be phrased better. Um, <laughs> where, where would you encourage those folks to go now, knowing what we know, knowing what we don't know, knowing how much work there is to do on this? You know, you look at what Sam and Brandon are doing with, uh, you know, global.health, um, which is like sticking with this and trying to figure out like, okay, what does it actually do and who is affected and why and what have we learned and what's going to happen? Because this thing isn't going anywhere, you know? Where would you point these people? Where are the different places that would be inspirational and practical and where they could actually make a difference? Yeah. Well, one thing, I don't know if we talked about this book last time, Quinn, but one thing, I, the book that I would suggest is uh, Spillover by David Kwame. Yeah. You know, it talks about sort of yeah. the, the connection. If you're inspired and you want to see the connection between the human and the, the environment you know, and how these pathogens arise. And that's a good example of the tapestry that we exist in and describing the tapestry that we exist in. Um, I, I think that the, the lesson for me is that you don't need to be in the sciences and you don't need to be in technology to do this. We recognize very clearly that you can help with pandemics um, from many different ventures, you know, uh, whether whether it's culture, whether, whether it's policy, whether it's, you know, there's a ton of different things. So figure out what you like doing. Um, and and then apply that to the cause of of of, of the response. Um, I think that for most people, you know, if you are interested in getting into the technical aspects of it, um, it's it's not a bad idea to start taking courses, potentially focus on you know on this in 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 in, in both your college or in your undergrad to see if you enjoy the subject matter. And if not, then maybe it's you know maybe it's like I said, there are many other disciplines that you can go sure. into. And then lastly. Check out our website. It's uh, there's many organizations you should check out, but I'm gonna I'm gonna forward you to our website, which is at www.bu.edu uh, backslash or is it forward slash? I don't know. Oh, the kids, the kids will know. They'll, they'll they know. will figure it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can find us on Twitter, but it's it's bu.edu slash ceid seed. Um, and, and we will, on that website, you'll find a ton of other resources getting you to the places, um, that we hope we'll find, will you can find more information from. You know, I think about that. And like you said, you know, we're, we're big fans of the, the question I, I feel like I get when I'm in the back of an Uber or conversation or whatever it might be, or kids or whatever is, is whether it's climate or something else is what can I do? You know, or it's phrased, what can I do? Or it's more desperate. And it's like, what can I do? And and the easiest, most simple answer is like, well, what can you do, right? Which is like, it's the 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 conflux of what are you into and what are you good at and what what brings you joy or inspiration or or progress, whatever it might be. And I think about this, like you said, every, you can contribute in so many different ways. I mean, like you said, messaging has been a huge part of this. Communication has been a huge part. Political leadership has been a huge part. And I just wonder, is as President Biden works to uh, make community college free and things like that. And we look at the difference in voting, whether it's high school degrees versus college degrees, things like that. College isn't for everybody. Fully get it. I loved it. It's complicated. It's totally broken, way too expensive. Pros and cons across the board. Community college can be amazing. Vocational training can be amazing. Fucking just Khan Academy can be incredible, right? But it seems like this basic level of education on things like probabilistic thinking, right, would be super helpful how infectious disease works, just literally just like a 101 for everybody seems like it would go a hell of a long way, whether you're going to eventually get into this or not. It's something that might just stick with you 
later when you're trying to decide what you want to do or when the next one comes down the pipe. And I, I wonder if that's something that we can be pushing alongside all of this, you know, acknowledging this is going to happen again. Yeah, um, I, I do think there are a bunch of new organizations that are looking at that. And they're, like you said, Khan Academy is a good one that's already done that, which is public education around scientific concept is going to be important. And so that is actually one of the things that, you know, we'll be looking at is those tools um, and exactly some of the things that you're talking about. Simple concepts like what's an R not? What are we talking about when we're, you know, all these epidemiologists have been following at Twitter. What have, what have they been talking yeah. about this whole year? Yeah. You know, like, and, and so it's things like that. But um, I, I want to point out to one specific thing everybody can do, particularly the Please. young listeners. Um, right now, you can do one thing that's going to change the destiny for yourself, for your community. It's going to change the course of this pandemic uh, for the rest of the world. And that's to get vaccinated. And that's because the vaccine, not just the COVID vaccine, not just protects you, but it, it's going to keep you from getting the infection silently and passing it on to somebody else around you who may have taken the vaccine, but their immune system maybe was not good enough for them to get protection. And so you are protecting others. You are allowing all of us to get back to normal if you take that vaccine. It seems so easy. Um, I empathize with people who are scared of needles. Um, I empathize with people who don't trust the medical establishment. I empathize people who are confused, even earnestly, from misinformation and disinformation. Uh, I, I get it, but we—if we, there's anything we have a certainty about in this thing, it's almost more than ever. I mean, vaccines are incredible, but these ones are truly incredible, and and they're proven. I mean, you look at Israel, who's just coasting. It's incredible. And, and we can get there. Um, it's going to be a lot harder. We're not the same place. It's just like when everyone's like, but New Zealand, Australia, I'm like, that's great. Their island. That must <laughs> right. be nice. Their leadership did a good job. But like, you know, come on. This is a very different place, obviously. But this is the thing. This is the thing that works no matter who you are. That's another one that could be added to the educational list is the term efficacy and how that's trans. I mean, the number of times I've seen just epidemiologists yelling at media people online. Um, you need to come and work for us. Oh, you can guide Jesus. us on all the topics. Just send us all the topics we should make videos on. We'll be happy to do that. Oh, God. You don't. You don't need that. It's, uh, it would be very <laughs> unfortunate. So that's what they can do. That's the number one thing. What about you know we've got elections coming up in a year. This thing is going to happen again. What are the like specific questions we do, should be talking about and asking about with our local representatives, state representatives, et cetera, et cetera? Because this thing, like climate change, happens on a local level. Yeah. Well, I, I think you start off by saying, what are you going to do to pandemic proof our community next time? What mm -hmm. are the investments that your, your you know, campaign, your, your government is going to be looking at to make my community safer? And the second question, and very much tied to that, is what are you going to do um, to ensure that there's equity, the health equity, so that we're all protected in, you know, in, 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 in the same way? And so that vulnerability of some does not, um, not just heavily take a toll on those communities, but also mm -hmm. leaves the rest of us vulnerable. So you can't have, you know, it's like the flood analogy. Like, you know, if, if the levees fail in some parts of the city that you sure. share, you know, with other, it would, and you may not live in, in the neighborhood where the levees fail, then they might be the heaviest affected, but we're all going to be flooded, you know? And, yeah. and so if that, if you need a selfish reason for health equity, then there, there is your selfish reason for health equity. And, 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 and the last bit I think is, uh, what are you going to do to put, good information rather than disinformation out. What are you going to do to to combat misinformation? Yeah, that works. Last few questions. I'm going to get you out of here back to 
saving the world here. Uh, Nahid, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? Selfishly, my parents. Have you seen them? Yes. And oh, I cannot tell you the, um, and I think this is true for many, many different people. And I say selfishly, my parents, because they have been the touchstone from which I, you know, the, they are the point of my resilience. I've realized my family is. Yeah. And I think it's been true for many of us. And and I know I say that with heaviness in my heart because I know there's many who lost family in in this in this last year. And and they, you know, watching my parents and 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 watching them get vaccinated is you know watching them become safer was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. And it's it became personal. It's all it was always was personal, right? Like I went through. I went to West Africa and watching sort of like the, the, the tragedy that played out in Ebola treatment units was what drove me, you know, after the years after that to continue working on this. And now it's, it's actually watching the vulnerability of my family potentially in this pandemic and, and seeing them come on the other side of this that I, I just now this is the thing. It's, it's home. It's, it's trying to get, you know, get all everybody's family and home safer. Sure. I, you know, I'm calling you from downtown colonial Williamsburg, but we're, we're surrounded by military here. You know, one of my best friends is a submarine captain. Like it's, we got air force, Navy, the whole thing. And we've got these three airports. And what's great is at really any given time, but specifically around the holidays, if you're in one of those airports, all you see are like children running towards the mom or dad coming home from a military tour. And if you're like me and you're Irish, you literally just cry all of the time. And the new version of that is the grandparents being reunited with their grandkids <laughs> after your videos. I just literally watch those on a loop all day. It's the greatest you could ever feel. It's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. So, the motivation is very close to home for all of us for the next one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know now what's what's at stake and how quickly this can move even with the best of intentions. Any new or reliable self-care that's working with you besides starting a new center for research because you didn't have <laughs> enough to do? Yeah, I mean the same thing that we've always done, which is you know exercise, and and mm-hmm. and I think that I, I think that the if, even though I hate, I'm sorry to say Zoom, the company, you've done a fantastic job, but I, I just hate Zoom it's meetings. Not, it's not their fault. It's the paradigm. It's not their it's fault. Not, no, it's no, the no. paradigm. Yeah, no, no, no. They're wonderful. They're and, yeah. and they've done an incredible job. But my point is that I have recognized how much closer. Uh, I found myself reaching out to people and, and who I didn't have time for and they didn't have time for me before who I yeah. knew I always loved and respected. And now I can just do a Zoom call, you know, yeah. like, and, and the pandemic yeah. has sort of put the par- barriers down to sort of do that, right? And and so I think that even though we're going back to normal, I know that I'm going to be doing Zoom calls, you know, or Zoom, sure. Zoom, Zoom gatherings with my friends yeah. from across the world and it's going to bring us closer. And so that's been another part of the 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 wellness. And, and, and the third is recognizing my own limits, you know, and being okay with that because it's the pandemic, man. It's all right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's okay. It's enough. Um, yeah. I mean, my job is about one 10,000th as, as vital as yours. And, and, you know, but I, I do too many things. And, um, my therapist is fond of saying like your load and your limit can't be the same thing, man. Maybe like once in a while and crunch time, but like that can't be, the this the the way things are going like it's just it's not going to work pandemic or not um yeah. and it is important to take a step back and be like things are a little difficult maybe give yourself a break yep what's a book uh, uh last question that you've read this year that's opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before or it's changed your thinking in some way i have to go 
I'll have to go in my desktop or my rather oh, my uh, I mean, uh, bookshelf to try to figure this out. I did read the plague cycle and get well soon, but of course these are all in my field, you know. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I can't really. But get well soon actually was a really good book. It's uh, Jennifer Wright, I think, mm-hmm. uh, historical perspective on infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. I, I can't seem to get infectious diseases off my brain either, you know. Um, but it, it's an interesting perspective, and uh, because it sort of goes through. Um, what I'm always fascinated about is 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 not just science and technology of it, right? But it's 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 how through the ages we've interacted with 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 the existential crisis that is that is these that is these infectious diseases, um, and and the and the social elements of that. Um, so I, I I said it 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 further expanded rather than completely sure. changed the way. I, but get well soon. Really, okay. really a quick read, very very fun read, uh, very historical read, um, and timely right now. Sure. I love that. Um, anything else? What did I not ask or anything you want to say to speak truth to power here before you uh, go off and conquer? I hope this makes us a kinder species. Hmm. I think that we, uh, it's not truth to power, maybe it's truth to to ourselves. You know, hmm. I think that we were so impatient with each other before. Maybe we'll be that way again the minute we take those masks off and walk in and get into a crowd again. But I hope that this seeing our own vulnerabilities, I hope it makes it kinder. It makes us kinder to each other. And I I hope that it makes us more patient. Yeah, that works. I think you'd appreciate this as my, the sign on my wall. Can you see that? Yes. (laughs) Work hard and be nice to people. It's just, it's not too hard. I can understand how in tough moments it can, it, it, you know, we've all got a snapping point, but our baseline for a lot of things, clearly, uh, you would hope this changes it a little bit. Um, those things go a long way. Uh, doctor, I can't thank you enough for coming on, for taking the time for all you've done this year. It's crazy. People see you on the news all of the time now. And uh, I'm excited to hear where this, with, where this uh, new group goes. It's very exciting. Um, I expect you'll just make it all better. So that's great. That's a lot of pressure there, Quinn. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's yeah, always, absolutely. Um, always I think last so good time to I, sit back. Yeah, I, I think last time I said, "Yeah, next time up in Boston, we'll 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 make something happen." And then no one was allowed to go anywhere for a year and a half. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, we will. We're, we're going to keep that on the table. Um, no, it's it's on the calendar. I love it. Uh, well, listen, be safe. Thank you for everything, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.